Hello, I'm Liberty Erickson, and this is a Maiwa podcast. The lecture, The Art of Story Painting, was recorded live Wednesday, September 30th, 2015, as part of the Maiwa School of Textiles lecture series held in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast consists of excerpts from the lecture and was first posted in 2018. The lecture is introduced by Bonnie Addy and features Susan Shai, who joins us here from Ohio. She is best known for her narrative art quilts and unique style of storytelling through drawing and painting. Susan currently teaches drawing workshops online as well as out of her home studio in Ohio. In this podcast, Susan takes us on an inspiring journey of her creative process, from personal stories to political commentaries to kitchen table tarot. Join us as Susan unlocks the time capsules of her work and we explore the art of story painting. Good evening and welcome to everyone once again to the Maywas Symposium evening lecture series. I recently heard someone say that they couldn't do any traveling this fall because it was Maywa season. <laughs> How true. Tonight I have the pleasure of introducing a self-proclaimed hippie chick <laughs> who comes to us from Worcester, Ohio and her Turtle Moon Studios. From a very young age, it was Susan Shy's destiny to become an artist and she had the support of her family, although neither of her parents were artists themselves. She loved going to church every Sunday as she was allowed to kneel on the floor and use the seating in front of her to support her paper and pencils <laughs> and continue to draw. Susan draws, paints, writes, and stitches on whole cloth. It is not usual for artists to write all over their paintings, but she loves to tell stories in her own words. Perhaps parts of famous speeches will be found in her art, but they have to have some significance historically. She will tell her own stories, will tell of world events, make political statements, and write of family news, becoming a sort of reporter to those of us who view her work in her hopes to create an awareness of current events. She is truly a communicator of ideas through personal narrative, using images that are both personal and universal, and including an intense sense of humor in her work. It is a peaceful and constructive way of expressing her own opinions. At one time, her work included hours and hours of intricate hand stitching, but today thousands of words in tiny writing, along with some machine stitching, is her means of adding texture to her work. Susan obtained a BA from the College of Worcester, followed by a Master of Fine Arts from Kent State School of Art. She obtained grants from the National Endowment for the Arts and Ohio Arts Council, has won Best of Show at Quilt National, had a six-month artist residency in New York City, as well as a residency in China. In 2008, she received Professional Quilters Teacher of the Year Award. Susan's work has been exhibited widely nationally and internationally. She teaches in the U.S. and abroad and holds turtle art camps at her home studio as well as conducting online drawing classes. Please join me in welcoming Susan Shai. That was really nice. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you all. I love to come to Maywa. It's just the most wonderful place to teach and, and be, and I like to see what people wear when they come here for these lectures. Everybody dresses up. It's fun. I love it. I started teaching online drawing classes in January, and I thought I would never do this. I would never teach online, because when I was in graduate school, back then I thought it was awful when people commuted to graduate school. They'd come and go, and they'd take a class, and they wouldn't know what the hell was going on at the school, and they missed over half of the important experiences. So to me... Online classes were just like the Antichrist. I couldn't believe it. So I had to figure out a way to, to make it work for me so I could believe in what I was doing and also make people feel like they were getting a real class. And my, my classes, I, I try to make them as much as possible like a real class. And there's a lot of interacting and dialogue going on. And it's, I haven't been able to make more than one big, large art quilt this year. That's how much it's taken my time. But this is my cousins and me when we were little girls. 
and it's based on a photo that I found in my mother's stuff. And we're walking down the street wearing dresses our mothers made for us. And what I have people do in the class is I give them a theme, and they can use it or not. They have to draw freehand in a big, large, hardbound sketchbook like mine that's sitting over there somewhere. And I just want them to think, and I, they don't have to write on it. They just need to tell a story somehow in a, pictures or words or a combination of those. And I, I don't tell them how to draw. I just encourage them to draw. They don't get it. They don't get it, but most of them do. And this is an assignment I gave my students to do, the, the Dalai Lama's 80th birthday. And the, the day before or after, one of them, Bert from Bert's Bees, died at 80. And then the Dalai Lama had this 80th birthday. And I just thought it was interesting. The two of them were kind of like hippie chicks, only they're dudes. And, <laughs> you know, they're both very peaceful people. And uh, so that's my, my drawing. The students put in some really interesting drawings, too. This is a, a drawing of a friend of mine in Cincinnati that has a store called St. Teresa's Textile Trove. And this is the, the hayride at the Snyder Family Ice Cream Supper a year ago, but I drew it this year because I didn't take any good pictures this year. The story is that, the, that those are the specific people from my family in the, in the hay wagon, and it is drawn from a photo I took. But uh, at the last minute, I added all the cows in the field because my farmer cousins have gone to um, this crap about having the cows inside of a barn all the time, and they say, the cows like it. And... <laughs> <laughs> and they, they give them special feed like Purina dog chow, only it's cow chow. And so they're not out getting fresh air, they're not eating grass, and, and they're becoming plastic cows. So at the last minute, I couldn't stand it, and I just scribbled in these cows in the field, made myself feel a lot better about it. But then I thought, oh, no, this cousin of mine, that's the farmer's wife, she's on Facebook, and I wanted to use it to promote my class, and she clicked that she liked it. So I thought, maybe she just didn't get it that I was you know, protesting her cow treatment. <laughs> this is a piece that started out to be about my grandpa Shai's last plant in captivity, in, in, in reality even. It's, a, it's an Augusta Hosta that I own that my grandfather died in 1956, and he was quite a gardener, and this is the last plant. And it's the first, plant, the first drawing I made after I broke my hand, but I thought it was sprained. In August, and uh, the next day, Jimmy Carter announced that he has cancer that spread, and so I put him and my granddaughter up in the top. So it became a Jimmy Carter piece, and all the writing—I wasn't going to write on it, but I wrote a lot of stuff about Jimmy Carter. He's one of my heroes, and this is another one of my heroes, Julian Bond, who died this fall unexpectedly. He was a, a really strong civil rights activist in the United States. He was uh, the president, the first president of the Southern Poverty Law Center. And he was still an, an emeritus member of their board of directors when he died. He was still very active at 75. So I gave my students this as a special event assignment that they could do or not, was make a piece about Julian Bond, and a lot of them did. And it was, it's just really, really interesting to give people an assignment that might have a political bent to it and, and give them all the rope they need to do anything they want with it. They could say, I'm not doing that. You know, they wouldn't say it, but they just don't do it. Or they could bend it around a little bit or whatever. But I'm, I've been surprised at how many times um, they rise to the occasion and, and do the thing. And, you know, they're getting some education there when they do the research. And all I care about is that they do it freehand and they don't mess around cheating by erasing and tracing and digital stuff and all that. No, no iPad drawings in this class. It's all real. And this is the last one of the class drawings, I think. This is uh, after I smashed my hand and... I think at this point, I, I knew I was going to have the surgery. Oh, no, I had the surgery. This is after I had the surgery to fix my hand. And so I've got a purple surgical glove on so I can eat my hamburger and not get the cast gooey. And I thought I was really smart. And <laughs> the trouble was it was real, those little surgical gloves are really tight on my cast, and it kind of squeezed me. But uh, and I've been putting fortune cookie fortunes on my drawings like I did when I was in college and graduate school. I kind of got away from that for a while, and I've gone back to it. I really enjoy it because I, I pull it at random, and I put it on there, and, and it seems to me that it usually makes sense, but I also think the viewer thinks I intended those, those words to be there. So I like to, to uh, give the viewer something like that because people want logic. They want to think that you did it on purpose, and most of my writing is on purpose, but that is a, a random thing.
So this is a drawing I made when I was about three or four. And I had a friend who was writing a book about me that never got published because she couldn't get funding for it. She had me dig up a bunch of my kid drawings, and that was kind of fun to go through those. So it's a couple cutting a wedding cake, and look at the little tiny people underneath the table. And it makes me wonder, what was I thinking, you know? (laughs) Were those dolls or were those mini people? I don't know. And then this is a painting that I made on canvas when I was uh, in, in college, and some friends and I went from the College of Worcester to visit a friend who had a, uh, a residency in New York City for the quarter of the semester, and, and we went to a place called the Bagel Nosh. And I was in my pattern painting pe- period. I was doing Matisse, and we had just gone to the modern, and I saw Matisse's painting, The Dance, in person, and it's, it's a big one. Sometimes I would get really upset because I'd go to museums and I'd see little teeny tiny paintings that I'd seen big in slideshows in college, you know, and then go see these little dinky things. But this thing was big, and so I had to stick a little piece of it up in the corner there, the top left corner. And the, the, one of the women in that picture, the one that has the curly hair, owns that piece now. So I, I actually know where it is. It's very nice. This is my house, and that's my biggest painting that I've made since the junior prom Painting, you know, you, the juniors make all the decorations for the senior prom. And then, then they burn the murals the day after the prom. <laughs> so, and I don't know if they were really any bigger than this, because this is a great big garage door. And then all the framing around it is also painted. And it, it's uh, Obama and, um, and me and Jimmy and my daughter Gretchen and her family. And it's, it's our house and their house and Lake Erie behind us, which is kind of funny because we live real far from Lake Erie, but they don't. And uh, I, I painted it right before the election when Obama became president the first time. And somebody went past and said, what are you going to do if he doesn't win? Like, yeah, yeah. And, and I, said, I said, he's going to win because I worked really hard to make this mural. And it's, it's a whammy, and it's going to work. And see, it did. And this is my Jimmy, and this is my little granddaughter, Eva. And this picture's old now because Eva's almost 11. But I love how she used to sit up on his work table. He's a leather artist. And, and she would sit up on his work table and watch him and, and try to help him do this stuff. It was very sweet. Um, this was a piece when, when I won that Best of Show at Quilt National in 1987. It was the first time I ever heard of Quilt National because I was a painter. And I came to quilting out of a feminist choice. Well, a feminist hippie choice. But, uh, <laughs> but I found out about this after I did my thesis, so I entered it in. And um, it's, it's called Neighborhood with Comet Scar. And they didn't, they didn't use it in the publicity hardly at all because it looked like a big bag of mush when you make, took a picture of it and just made it tiny and black and white. But my intention was for people to root around in it. There's all kinds of pockets and things, and I wanted it to be interactive. And I found out pretty quickly that if you're going to be in museum stuff, you can't rely on letting people, because they won't make exceptions for you because you might start a stampede of people wanting to feel all the artwork. And so they, they won't let you do that. They were three-dimensional figures. on This is Jimmy, and I loved his red long johns. He looked so cute in them. And the, and this big curly hair, and he was skinny and so cute. And this was the first green quilt, which doesn't mean anything now, but it was a world project that I started in which I asked people to make art quilts telling a story about something they felt was important about healing the earth. And I thought this project would go on forever, but after 15 years it had fizzled so down to nothing that I decided to end it. And uh, people say to me often, you should bring it back. And no, I can't do it. I'm, I'm done. I'm not a curator anymore. I'm just, just a starving artist now. I'll <laughs> stay that way. But this was called Back to Eden. And it was also the first time my husband collaborated with me on his, with his leather work added to my art quilts. And we did that for a while. This was 1989. And that, that went on for... Um, maybe 15 years, but then he got so busy when he got into fly fishing with uh, doing leather work for fly fishermen that he had to fire himself. This is a prayer for the serpent mound. In Ohio, we have a serpent mound. It's a big effigy of a snake, and nobody can really figure out. It's not a burial mound. They don't exactly know what it was, but it's prehistoric, and it's very beautiful. And the guy was trying to ruin it, so this was all about that. And I did all the writing with a big... Not a big, big bit of a paintbrush, not with the something that I use now. I published the first two 22 cards of my 78-card deck of kitchen tarot cards, quilts. But I'm not done making them yet. I started it in 1998. I will be doing it yet for probably another 
10 years maybe, to finish them up. And most of them are pretty big, but this one was the first one. And the, the first card in the tarot deck is the fool. And I looked around the kitchen to decide what could represent the fool. And, and I decided a colander because you wash things and you, you having that cleanliness, that cleanness is like having a clean slate. About This is about innocence. And um, on the cat's face, it's, it's embroidered on black velvet, and so I couldn't mark it. I just had to focus and not think about other things while I was making each stitch out, sort of out into the air, you know, and so I misspell things if I thought about other things. And then this is a little farther down. This is a much, much bigger piece. This is about 90 inches tall, and this was a, a quilt national piece. I've had work in 13 quilt nationals now, and I'm quite proud of that because it's really hard to get into it, and it's in Ohio, so I can go to it. It takes me four hours to get there, but I can go to that show. So I always enter it. I haven't gotten any more awards like that big fancy best of show, but that's okay. But this is the, the teapot, which is the high priestess in the tarot deck. It was made of smaller pieces sewn together, and this one was about my cat Maggie, who died while I was teaching somewhere. So I started this little shrine to her at the place I was teaching at before I got home, and then I added it to this quilt. So it's back when I was doing all of this hand sewing. This is before computers. This is before I spent half of my time doing email and Facebook and promoting my workshops and stuff that way. And that's, that's where our time has gone, a lot of it, sadly. This is about the cookbook. It's another kitchen to row piece. And it's about 90 inches wide. I like to, I like to make big pieces because I can do a lot more with them. And This one I got in trouble at Quilt National because... The center panel, you can lift it up, and there's more painting underneath it. And I was showing a friend, and one of the henchmen came up and said, <laughs> you can't do that. And I said, but it's my piece. You know that. And he said, no, you're setting a bad example. <laughs> and so I had to quit. But there's a great big face under there. I was trying to do hand sewing but get away from doing so much, so I was doing it big. And that was on canvas. That wasn't on regular cotton. This is a project at um, Washington University's Island Press. They ended up making 19 art quilts that are 75 by 48 inches based on that cookbook piece I just showed you. And I helped them make the prints. There's 11 panels. And then I wrote a separate diary on each one of these 19 pieces based on a different recipe. And I owned eight of them. And they were all hand-sewn, but by three women volunteers who worked on them for years and years. I gave one of them to the International Quilt Study Center, but I still own a bunch of them. It just amazes me those women worked that hard. Look at all their hand stitching on that. I didn't sew any of it. I just wrote on them. I designed the panels, they printed them, and then I wrote on them. And I've, I've never seen anything like it in terms of uh, generosity. It's just amazing to me. This is the Lazy Susan. It's another kitchen trope piece. When I was a little girl, I didn't like it. Even a young woman, I thought that was the most rude thing because my name's Susan. And I thought, I am not lazy. So I, I decided for the lazy Susan in the kitchen, it would be this lazy Susan. It, it's really the, the card it stands for is called the Wheel of Fortune. So I picked different objects in the kitchen for each of the astrology signs. And this is the one for Libra. It's my mother's little sugar bowl because Libra likes to make things sweeter and nicer. And this one, I was trying to machine sew this, and I just couldn't do it and went back and hand sewed it. And see all those tiny stitches around all those... This was finished in 2005, and I was using my air pen by then. And with my air pen, which my students in my class, they don't have to use it. They can try it. If they don't like it, they can go back to using markers to write with. But in my thinking for my work, if I use markers to write with, then I'm going to hand sew over that writing. I don't like marker line for a finished line. But when I started figuring out how to make air pen work for what I do, I was able to put fabric paint through the air pen and therefore make a line that is completely rich and crispy and, and uh, archival, and so I don't have to embroider over them. But I was making this tiny writing and then trying to make tiny stitches to fill in around it, and I was spending all of my time stitching, and at about that point, my hands started to get numb. My fingertips got numb, and, and that's painful when your fingertips are numb. It's the weirdest thing. You, you don't feel stuff right, but you feel pain. And so this was the first piece I made where I used my air pen, used my paints, and I machine sewed all of it. I think this one I didn't even make. Now I make a line of stitching around the edge by hand, like a running stitch. But this first one I didn't. So there was really literally no hand sewing on this except probably sewed the casing on the back by hand. 
And then people said to me, you can't do that. We want you to hand sew. And I said, then buy my work. And (laughs) you don't buy it, shut up. (laughs) Because what I was realizing was I was spending way too much of my time sewing and not nearly enough of my time telling my stories. Because I would paint, and then I would paint like in a week, and then I would spend months sewing. And that's not where I belong. And I thought, I'm the only person making me do that. This piece is about um, taking care of my granddaughter up in Cleveland when she was a baby. You see the two little houses. The one on the left on this side has my husband Jimmy in it, and the one on the right has my granddaughter in it. And it was the year of the chicken or the rooster. See that little chicken pot pie down there? And it was the year that Christo did the gates in Central Park. And on the right, if you go straight over from the chicken pot pie, there's one of Christo's gates. And this is a fortune cookie fortune it's my favorite one ever. This, one, uh, this figure I use, the woman figure in the center there, that woman in the middle with the wings, that's St. Cool to the Comforter. And she's a double meaning, but she's also my mother. She's a very wonderful person. And the fortune says, a good wife and a good skillet gets better with age. And it's so macho, it's good. I mean, it just goes far beyond macho, just classic macho. It just goes to mega macho to the point where you just got to go, yeah. Well, I do love skillets, you know, <laughs> so I guess it must be true. So this is my piece I made when, when uh, Hurricane Katrina hit, but I didn't know that when I drew it and painted it. I was making a piece about, I would call it Granny Panty Blues, and it was for a, a show called The Blues. I had all my imagery in there. It was all painted, and then Katrina hit. And I was taking care of this baby and watching CNN when the baby was asleep, just getting all hepped up about how awful this was that they weren't doing anything about it. And it's all on there for days. All the stuff I wrote was about Katrina. So it ended up being called Katrina Blues. And the only thing that even looks remotely like New Orleans is that on both the sides, in the middle of both sides, there's a little palm tree. And that was just a coincidence. So it was, it was there already. It had nothing to do with Katrina. It was just, I like palm trees. So now this is the next one. We don't even know about Hurricane Wilma, because Hurricane Katrina was so nasty, we don't even know that Wilma was a much nastier hurricane, but it didn't have the levees break or anything afterwards. It didn't hit New Orleans, which is already flooded, but it, it, it broke all kinds of records. So this is my story about that. Um, this was a piece of mine that got on the cover of Quilt National, which is kind of like getting an award, and especially since they put the whole piece on instead of a detail. And I think they didn't want to put a detail, because if they put a detail, they, you would have read all this political stuff. Because this was about the Bush administration. And see, I'm real sneaky. And I make all this stuff that looks like, oh, isn't that cute? Little weird stuff there. But it's got all this stuff written on it. And, and it's the tower card in the tarot deck. And I'm looking around the kitchen going, oh, man, what could be an explosion in the kitchen? Because the tower explodes. You let the situation go too long and something gives and it explodes. So I thought pressure cooker. Because I always hear these stories about pressure cookers exploding and the green beans stuck to the ceiling. And so, so I made a stack of pressure cookers because I went to eBay to look at pictures of pressure cookers. For some reason, I picked eBay instead of Google. And there were all these little, those little thumbnail pictures of pressure cookers, and it looked like a stack of them. And I thought, that is the tower. So the tower is leaning to the right. See, it's real sneaky. It's, it's all encoded. And so my husband and I are trying to push it back and see, that's our kids on St. Quilta's head. They're in their little house. They're too busy leading their, their young life, taking care of their kid to be very political. But we're like pushing back and trying to keep it from falling on our kids. Down in the bottom is a woman's head. It's a great big head goes all the way across the bottom, and she's asleep. But there's these birds flying up out of her, and they're the 4 and 20 blackbirds that were baked in the pie. And she's the pie. And they are the, they are the citizens who understand the problem. And they're flapping all around the Statue of Liberty who is crying. And she's got her left arm up instead of her right arm. So they were getting really, really into this deep, deep symbolism. But you don't know it unless you can read it. You just look at it and go, that woman is crazy. <laughs> and here's some of the pressure cookers right now. And see, I, I can't tell some of this stuff to an American audience because half of you would be Republicans. You'd be sitting there going, grrr. <laughs> but I know you come to May while you're not like that. So it's Okay. <laughs> But the, each one of these pressure cookers is a different pressure, different thing going on. And that, well, now we go to something more peaceful. Now we get to the moon card because I'm trying to go through the first 22 cards in the deck as in order. And the moon was the next one after the tower. And the moon is how we base our calendar. 
So I made the kitchen calendar be the moon card, and up on the top you'll see a calendar, and I wrote little things on that for every day of the month that I was making the painting and writing on it. it must have, it's a huge piece, so I, it was pretty amazing. I only spent a month doing that. And this is the sun card that comes right after the moon. And I decided the sun card was mom and apple pie because I thought everybody, well, not everybody, but certain people in our country think that only Republicans are patriotic. And they might be right about some things, but not about everything. Like all of us like a lot of the good things about the United States. And so I decided to do this pie thing because I like pies. I use pies as symbols of blessings and gifts anyway. This is my little granddaughter, Eva. Her half birthday is Earth Day. And, and so I gave her a little eco cupcake there. And she's sitting under the pie safe. And I haven't talked about my peace cozies, but you'll see up there it says the cosmic pie safe. But I made it the, the cosmic peace pie safe. A pie safe is the thing they used to have in restaurants where they keep the pies fresh until you ate them. So that's what that is. And that piece cozy goes on every piece. Once I get it all finished, I have to decide where it goes. And it, it's got to do with having, I had to cover a swastika once. That was not because I liked Hitler, but because I didn't like Bush. And that's all I'm going to say about it right now, because I don't have time. <laughs> this piece is totally not political. This is called, well, the long title is Don't Slam the Silverware Drawer. But it's, it's the silverware drawer, and it's, it's the next card, Judgment. It was, it's about my father, who would always yell at us not to slam the silverware drawer when we were cleaning up after supper. It's all about growing up in my family. And you'll see the silverware drawer has silverware floating up in the air and then it's turning into pies, which we remember our blessings and, and gifts. The silverware is the things your parents teach you and the pies are the gifts. So the forks are the things that kind of you know, give you tools to use and the spoons are the sweet things they teach you and the knives are the things that might hurt a little bit. But they all turn into pies in the end. This is the last one of the major cards. This is the, the world card and I made it be the potluck. I was thinking what you could have at a kitchen that would be about the world. And I almost did the kitchen sink, and I did stick the kitchen sink in there, right in the middle, but that, it's still the potluck. Oh, this one I had to go back and do. I didn't finish a couple of them, so this is the justice card, and it's got the scales, and Jimmy and me, and, uh, and he's got a pant leg that looks like the blue and green tiles we laid in our hallway. So this is all airbrush and air pen painting. It's all that tech stuff I never dreamed I would use. And this is the first lady piece, but it's also... The queen of paring knives. Now we're in the um, minor cards. There's four suits. Paring knives are the swords. And she's the queen of swords. It's an intellectual woman who's very powerful. So this is Michelle Obama and her family right after Barack Obama was inaugurated the first time. And it's my biggest piece I've made. It's 93 by 83 inches. This is a big piece right after the earthquake in Haiti. And I had never known so much about Haiti. And I've got to tell you, if there's a country in the world that has been ganged up on, it's this one. All because uh, a black country won its independence, and they just couldn't have that. And so they've sabotaged it ever since, and they continue to sabotage it. And I just, I just tried to put a lot of healing energy into it, a lot of positive things along with telling the real story. But it's a beautiful place and beautiful people. This is about the Gulf Coast when we had the BP's oil spill. See the blobs on the water? Those are oil. It's called Stars on the Water. And this got into the Quilt National 11, which means 2011. And it's the five of paring knives or swords. And after I got done drawing it with my airbrush, I make sketches first, you know, and, and then I just kind of add a lib from the sketches and big pieces of fabric. I realized that the, the palm trees look like wind turbines. And I thought, that's, I didn't plan that, but I'll own that. I'll own that, that we need to have those wind turbines instead of the oil. This is the... This is your queen at her son's wedding, her grandson's wedding. And the day before, the day after the wedding, one of those, Osama bin Laden, got killed and thrown in the water. And I was just kind of struck by that both of these news stories were very big news stories and how different they were. How it just struck me that you don't take somebody, no matter how much you hate them, and throw them in the water and say they're just gone. It just kind of freaked me out because in his country, he's a hero. And in our country, we have heroes that other countries don't think are heroes. So hero is subjective, and it, we're all people. We're all, we're all one. So if we're all one, he's one of us. And uh, I just wanted him to be there. I wanted people to see the difference in the way those two things were handled. But I also like the hats. really like the hats. I, I didn't watch the royal wedding. I, I went and bought a people. I never buy magazines. I went and bought a magazine, 
And I looked at all the pictures and read the captions and stuff and then made this piece. And I, I like Queen Elizabeth. She's, she's amazing. I had my students do a new piece about her that after she got to be the longest reigning monarch in England. I thought that was pretty cool. This is about Jimmy and Eva making French toast. But it's also, the writing is all the story of the World Trade Center bombing and told from both sides because there's rights and wrongs on both sides. This is my rotten little opinion, but I don't think that we were totally innocent in having those trade centers bombed. And all we hear is the one side in America. That's all we hear. And I didn't want my granddaughter to only hear the one side, so sometimes she'll read this maybe. And up in the corner, you'll see the World Trade Centers. So this is a huge piece, so there's a lot of writing on there. She didn't know what her sick old grandma thought. (laughs) (laughs) This is called Twilight Time. Here we have a smaller piece. It's still a kitchen tarot piece, and it's about our evening ritual back when I still drank a glass of wine before bed until I realized it gave me insomnia. And, but, it, you know, it's Jimmy and me and our snacks and then all of our little critters floating around. It was back when Libby was small enough to climb up on Jimmy's lap. She's 62 pounds now, so she can't do that anymore. And the cats are there, and it's all very cozy. And it's the four of Pyrex cups. You see these cups over here around Jimmy. I like this piece. This is about two women who died two days in a row. Artist James, who was one of the biggest quilt proponents in the world of art, traditional quilts and art quilts, and Betty Ford, who died one day after each other. And uh, in the same picture, up in the top left corner, I put Pete Seeger and Nelson Mandela, who were the same age as Betty Ford. And, of course, they were both still alive then. I told stories about a lot of it, but it's, it's called Artists and Betty, and it's the two of wooden spoons, and so I made the women into wooden spoons. And this is about a, an invention out of the College of Worcester in my town. If this would catch on in the world, they would be able to clean up all the polluted water. It's called Ozorb, and it's an organic compound that doesn't pollute anything. And they, could, they tried taking it to um, Louisiana to help clean up the Gulf Coast, but they wouldn't let them come with it. So they sent down a tank truck, and they got a bunch of the water, and they cleaned it and, and gave them back their water and all the oil that was in it, but they wouldn't believe them. But they've gotten all kinds of awards, and other countries use their product, and someday it will catch on more, but it's just amazing. It started by accident. They were looking for a compound to dust people's hands with at security at the airports. And this is one of the things they found instead. This is about my iPad named Sweet Jane, but it's also about when Steve Jobs died and his little biography is on his pants. It's the nine of potholders, which are coins in my deck. And so I have nine potholders that represent nine, my nine uh, Apple devices I owned over time. And that's me and my granddaughter and her cousin floating around the iPad drawing Libby, who's laying on the couch. And the drawing of Libby is based on a drawing my granddaughter made of her while she was looking at her. And and if you have a kid make a drawing when they're looking at something, you're going to be blown away at how cool that is. And it was a big thing. And I I told her, I I copied her, and she looked at me like, I thought I loved you. You know, (laughs) she she was so floored that I swiped it. I said, well, I didn't trace it or anything. I I made it after your Libby. And uh, I I thought, I'm never doing that again. (laughs) She wasn't very forgiving. It doesn't look just like hers, honest. (laughs) Just almost. (laughs) This is a story of of women who were involved in the uh, Arab Spring. My friend from Worcester and a woman from Egypt who was very involved in, uh, in teaching the Egyptian people about Gandhi and about Martin Luther King and teaching the Egyptian people passive resistance before they had their, when they're getting ready to have their revolution when it was looking like it was working. This is when Trayvon Martin died. I couldn't stand it, and I had to make a piece right away. It's a protest against gun, too many guns, and and just the whole mess. And it's one of the kitchen tarot pieces. It's the Eight of Wands or the Eight of Wooden Spoons. This is about some friends of mine that have a band called the David Wax Museum, and it's uh, three of potholders. Well, this piece was in Quilt National 13, so I have it back at home now, and it's great big. And I got to go to Spain. I never get to go anywhere really super amazingly different, you know. And, and when I was a kid, we never went anywhere outside of close by, you know. So I never expected to get to travel. But I got to go to Girona and Barcelona. And this is my experiences mostly in Girona, but a little bit of Barcelona. That face in the middle is me. And I forget which kitchen tarot thing this is, but, oh, it's the Nine of Cups. That's right. Thank you. So this is my favorite detail, and I made this into a print. This went around Facebook a few years ago. It was when you know people put up those quote things, 
And this one said, beware of artists. They mix with all classes of society and are therefore the most dangerous. And then it said, it was a quote from Joseph McCarthy. And I thought, oh, let me add it, you know. So I make this piece and I write the quote on my face. You know, I'm there in Girona. I take it to my buddy at Staples to get it printed. And he says, Joe McCarthy didn't say that. He says, that was Queen Victoria. And I'm going, shit, 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 shit. (laughs) So I go home and I don't call it. I forget what I was going to call it. I just called it me in Spain. And I call call it beware of artists. I'm erasing the pencil on the prints and I'm changing it to me in Spain. And then I decided to check it on Snopes. And I checked it on Snopes and they said, it's not Joe McCarthy. It's not Queen Victoria. It's King Leopold of Belgium writing a letter to Queen Victoria, and it's paraphrased. So I thought, oh, now I like it. It's so convoluted and messy. I really like it. <laughs> it's like urban legends, you know. It's just crazy. And so, and I went back to all my prints, and I erased this thing, and I put beware of artists all over again. <laughs> so if you want to beware of artist print, that's it right there. We are, remember, we're dangerous. So if you're an artist, you know, be kind to your friends because you're dangerous. And this piece is here back in that pile over there. This is a, I made it for a show about the Midwest. You had to make a piece of your view in the Midwest. So it's called My View Out the Kitchen Window. We can see our garden out there, and it's rainbow-shaped. And Jimmy's out there picking tomatoes, and Libby's sneaking into the garden, and I'm yelling, get out of the garden, Libby. And Eva is down here drawing the whole thing. And then this is, uh, there's a show on aging. And I, I decided to tackle the idea of Alzheimer's for myself. But at the same time... I was thinking about Gabby Gifford, and, uh, you know, she'd been shot, and then Malala Yousafzai got shot, and they had different kinds of head wounds, and one was a little bit older than the other, but they're young women compared to my mother who had Alzheimer's. So I was writing about everybody's story there and, and how when you have someone in your family who's had Alzheimer's, especially if a lot of people in your family, you're really paranoid about that. You forget something, and you start running around in circles freaking out. So it's about all of that. And it's one of the kitchen throw pieces. It's the ace of paring knives, the knife across the bottom. And swords or paring knives, are the, the element is air, and air represents thinking. So that ties in with Alzheimer's because the thinking gets so scrambled. This is about my friend Rill. Her, she had a different real name, but her artist name that she changed to her real name was Rill Bending Reeds. Everybody knew her as Rill, but her real name was Sandy. And I knew that because she had me make her a little commission about her girlhood, and I got the stuff ferreted out of her. And then Hurricane Sandy came along. And so I combined the two of them. You'll see the Statue of Liberty there. She's there because uh, Liberty Island got real messed up, and they had to close it down for a while. And there's Rill with her. She had goats when she was a kid, so that's why the goat's in there. Her goat's name was Cindy. So it's Cindy Sandy Rill. And it's also a kitchen throw piece. And this is one of my favorites. I really love this piece. This is my second Obama inauguration. It's a very big piece, and I see it like a kind of like a, a Greek frieze. And I put everybody I could squeeze in that was at that inauguration. And then some people who weren't there, like we weren't really there, but I stuck us over here on the far left in the middle. It's called American Pie. And I got that name when I was waking up one morning. I just It popped into my head like a little vision, like a little gift. And, and I looked at my drawings. And I didn't have the Capitol Dome in it. And that this inauguration is held at the Capitol. And I thought, that Capitol Dome looks like big old pie. So now I look at the Capitol, I think pie. That's the American pie, that Don McLean song, American pie. It's about this inauguration, I'm sure. And it was also the six of potholders. So there they are down there at the bottom. So everybody there was there. Martin Luther King is on the other side of Michelle because they used his Bible this time along with the Lincoln Bible. And it was on Martin Luther King Day when he got inaugurated. And I had to wait and wait and wait the day that he got inaugurated. They didn't leak what Michelle's dress looked like until they had an inaugural ball. I don't normally care about that kind of stuff, but I had to draw this woman in her dress. And so I'm waiting and waiting, and finally it comes out, and I go, it's red. Oh, God, it's red. And then I thought, I have to do this in, like, red, white, and blue, which is a little hard, but um, I did it. And there's this figure on top of the Capitol that's, I think she's called Freedom Lady or Lady Freedom or something like that. But she's not like the Statue of Liberty. She looks a lot like a hippie because she's got like an eagle on her head. So I gave her a palm tree and she's got a laurel wreath in her right hand. And I gave her a skillet for strength. And over here, I gave her a tambourine. But she actually does have this thing draped over her that's meant to be an Indian blanket, which I thought was very hippie. 
And so she's like a, a figure on top of that dome, but you don't see her because she's not nearly as big as the Statue of Liberty. This is a painting that we did in a class I teach at my house, these week-long sort of biosphere things. And these two women from Holland came over, and the three of us made this piece together. It's called Learn Chinese. And it's really about wearing respirators when you do airbrush, stuff like that. And each of us had to draw one of the others. <laughs> we, had, we had fun. Um, this is my cousin's 25th anniversary commission, and it's also a kitchen trope piece, but it's pretty small. It's about, it's about uh, the Florida Keys, Key West. And this is called um, Spot the Station, and it's about the International Space Station and our garden, and I'm waving up at the space station. And there was a woman in the space station. This is the reason I got into this. There's a woman astronaut who was, said she was going to sew up there, so I decided I had to focus on that. Down here in the bottom left corner is um, my granddaughter Eva and her cousin Olivia working on planting those little peat pot greenhouses. This is about Gypsy Rose Lee and Frida Kahlo. It's about strong, wild women. And now we're up to last year. This is Nelson Mandela. This is a big, wide piece. And Pete Seeger died after I had already drawn this. I probably wouldn't have put my granddaughter here on this side. She's over here. I wanted her there because I wanted the next generation that's going to come and you know, receive these gifts from people like Mandela and hopefully carry them on. And, and on the other side, I put Pope Francis. I, I just love Pope Francis. He's my hero now. And, and I heard someone say that he's, he's got the energy like Mandela. And I really, really resonated with that thought. I just thought, that's just perfect. Because so many people from so many different backgrounds identify with this man for so many different reasons. And, and it's just, it was lovely to have him come and visit the United States last week. It was just between him, he's on one end, and on the other end is that blood eclipse, that big supermoon. It's like bracketing that week. And it was just a powerful, powerful week. But this is, this is a year ago. Anyway, Pete Seeger died, and I had this dove up there because I had a picture of Pope Francis with this dove coming to him. So I put Pete Seeger up on the dove. I just drew him. I like, I like to scare myself. So the way I scare myself is not like by jumping out of airplanes or whitewater rafting. I draw freehand with permanent things. And that's what my students learn to do because that's what little kids do. Little kids that don't go to school yet don't use erasers. They don't think they make mistakes. And that's what I teach. You're not making mistakes. Love what comes out of you. And so I, I drew um, Pete Seeger up there with his banjo. And his banjo says, this machine surrounds hatred and forces it to surrender. And his buddy, Woody Guthrie, had a guitar that said on it, this machine kills fascists. So we see a little difference in the personalities there. <laughs> and I, I really like the uh, Pete Seeger version a lot better. This is about Annie Leonard, who now is the, pres or the uh, director of Greenpeace USA. But she started out as a young woman who Greenpeace hired. She dropped out of graduate school to go work for them to go around the world to see what was happening to all the garbage that the United States and England and other places were unable to get put into their own countries, where it was going and what was happening with it for 10 years. She was sort of a, a garbage spy. And then she started a project called The Story of Stuff. And it's all about our overconsumption and the, the way it's ruining the world. But in, told in a way that leaves you with hope and not despair, she uses a clothesline. And even as the director of Greenpeace, she told me she's still using her clothesline because somebody sent her the link to this picture, somebody that I know and she knows. And she wrote to me the day after she became the director and said, don't worry, I'm going to use my clothesline. <laughs> so that made me happy. But this is uh, all about her. This is after Maya Angelou died. And I, I got to say, I, I want to start trying to get around in front of people so I make pieces about them before they die instead of after they die. Because I, I do a lot of dead people work that I still want people to be remembered, but it's kind of sad to think that you've got to die. You know, and it's kind of the way the world is. But anyway, this is uh, my Quilt National piece that's in right now, in the Quilt National. And this is Maya Angelou telling my granddaughter some of her wisdom and teaching her how to bake a pie. And I don't know if Maya Angelou knew how, knew how to bake pies, but I think she did. And when she was young, she was a dancer. She was a dancer and, and all kinds of crazy things. And she even got into Calypso dancing, and she made an album in New York City called Miss Calypso. And she wrote some of the Calypso songs, most of them, on the album. 
And so that's her over here is Miss Calypso. And then I'm over on the other side. And the whole time that this piece was being worked on, you see how my arm is real long and then there's an iPhone? I didn't have anything drawn in that iPhone. I didn't know what I was going to put in there. And I finally decided Michael Brown got killed in Ferguson, Missouri. And it was quite a mess. I thought if Maya Angelou was still alive, she would be talking about this, certainly. And so I, I put him in this position with his hands up, and the, the chant was, hands up, don't shoot. And so that was the final thing that went into this piece. And then this is a piece about Eleanor Roosevelt. And now I'm going to have a hard time remembering the name of this. It's the, it's the UN Declaration of Human Rights, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which Eleanor Roosevelt was the, was the main, she was the chairman of the committee who really put together the thing, and then, and then the UN had to approve it. And the point of the thing was, this was after World War II, and they formed the United Nations, and they wanted to make a compact that every nation would agree on, that these are things that everyone is entitled to. And they had like 35 articles, and they're all written on here, as well as some of her biography. And the articles go down the front, and then they go around the border, and then they end up on the back of the piece, too, because there wasn't enough room. This is a very, very verbose document. And in the end, there were about eight countries that wouldn't sign it. It was just very utopian. And, you know, I never heard of it before. I have friends who had, but I hadn't. We didn't study it in school. I don't remember it. So the sad part is that it, it's not being enforced in any way. I mean, the UN is a very peaceful group, which they ought to be. But at the same time, that means they have no recourse when people deviate from their plans. And it has Martin Luther King on one side and the Statue of Liberty on the other side of, of Eleanor. When I was in graduate school in Kent, I did a performance piece, and I got in trouble for it because I was a painting major, and we had this 20-hour review. So at sometime after you've been there for about a year, they want you to put up a show and have this review, and they'd look at your work and see if you're going on a path, you know. So I thought, well, you know, it wasn't quite a year yet, but I'd made a lot of stuff, and I thought, I will, I will have this 20-hour review, and I'll get that over with. So... I had all, this gallery is just packed full of paintings and things. And I was doing um, women's underskirts as a euphemism for a woman's body, as an American body in particular. I know you guys wore underskirts too. So American Canadian body, <laughs> woman body. Anyway, I made up a creation story. And the basic chant line of this whole long script that I wrote was, in the beginning, there was this woman washing slips. So she was this goddess that just made everything, just like God made everything or whatever made everything. And there were all these reasons. And I put in this story about how then man came along. She made man, all this stuff. And, and then things go south and things get bad and things get worse. And then in the end, it, it comes back and she gets her power and then she teaches the man and stuff. So it's good. But in the meantime, I was, I was standing there at my mother's big galvanized metal wash pan, and I'm washing these underskirts my mom and I had bought. It. Somehow we ran into about 60 underskirts at the Goodwill, and we just bought them all. And my mother paid for them because she believed in me, even though she thought I was insane, I'm sure. So I'm washing the slips, and I hand them to the guy who's the head of the glass department, this macho dude from the Bronx, this real cocky guy. And he, he sort of makes a big mess out of them, and then he wads it up and hands it to this woman who was one of my students. And she took two of my painted clothespins, the slip, and she takes it out into the audience, who's all chanting along with me, and they've got a rhythm band and stuff. And she picks up the clothesline off the floor next to the person that's holding the last slip, and the next person has to hold this clothesline with this dripping slip. So by the end of the performance, the whole audience is all holding up the clothesline. They're all connected to this story. And I loved it. And then we took it to the gallery, and we hung the clothesline back and forth across the gallery. So now we, we go to the next morning, segue to my 20-hour review. Okay, the first thing that happens is not looking good. This guy says, take this thing, this clothesline thing down. And I said, but it's an art piece. It's the artifact from my performance piece last night. He says, I can't see the rest of the work because of all this stuff in the middle. And I said, but it's an art piece. And I said, it's a euphemism for how women have to do their housework before they can do their creative work. Yep, take it down, you know. And then this woman on the committee says, I don't think you should be doing performance art. You're a painter. And so it just went, and I had this really cool advisor that he was really peaceful, and he just kept his mouth shut, and they just rode all over me. And, and I, I wanted to say, I've got enough 
work in this gallery that's all connected to sink a ship. And it's all about these slips. And here they are, you know, but they made me go around and take that whole thing down. So I got an incomplete on my 20-hour review. And I, I'm, not, I'm not an arrogant person, but I thought for sure I was going to pass. I never worried about not passing a 20-hour review. And they go, incomplete. And they're writing all these little explanations that I can't read because I'm legally blind. And it's all real tiny. And I'm going, okay, I get it. I didn't pass. So they wanted me to make four more paintings like these four that they liked. And they were the paintings that I had made to fill up the space. Just fill in a little more space. I'd had these big sheets, and I painted them all up, and they were big abstract things, but they still had sort of slip forms in them. And I thought, I'd rather drown than make four more paintings like that. They said, make four more paintings like that. Come back in a month, and we'll pass you. So I came back in a year with a different committee, <laughs> and, and I, had, I learned by then that this was all political. And, you know, they were sort of getting at my advisor and me both, but be it as it may, because of that debacle of my 20-hour review, I sort of didn't think so much about this until many years later this year. And I got to thinking about it and how if I'd passed that 20-hour review, things might have gone a different way. And I decided to reenact it in this piece. And I've got a couple friends here who died this year. And they're helping hold up the clothesline. And then there's a, two ringleaders from Pussy Riot, the Russian protest group. They're over there. And... Um, An Sang Suu Kyi from Myanmar, she's over there on the right. And we have, um, oh, what's her name? Saberi. She's a, she's a uh, journalist. Roxana Saberi is sort of in the middle. And next to her is a woman named Kayla Mueller, who, who is a young woman, NGO humanitarian worker who got killed by ISIS. She's there. And then there's also people who were really there at the performance. And I wrote the whole script of the performance in these slips in the front. And I had room to write about everybody in the piece there, too. So I was real happy about it, getting back to that performance in a way. But like I said, it's the only piece I've made this year. It's big. I've made a lot of drawings. And my sketchbook is back there. You can see a lot of drawings in it if you want to look at it. Oh, and I never talked about the eyes. You see, I've got a lot of eyes. The third, the third eye is the Indian eye for the, third, the brow chakra, for the, our connection to our soul. And then I invented the one on the neck, which is... a proof that there's there's plenty of new ideas in the universe don't believe that stuff about no new ideas but that's the idea of uh, we speaking out from our soul to come not just to go into your soul and into your inner self but then bring that energy back out and be open and honest with people and, and giving and loving and sharing in that way and then this is me starting to teach my granddaughter to sew when she was four that's her showing me one of her drawings where she stopped a video and drew someone while she was looking at him, like she did when she drew Libby. There's this quantum leap when they draw from life. It's amazing. And then this is her drawing last month when we decided to take selfies of ourselves and draw them. And that's her with the colander. And that's the kitchen throw deck. That's it. Awesome. <laughs> Yay. Do you have any questions? If you do, just holler because I can't see that far. Thank you, Susan. What paint do you use? I use um, Jacquard Textile Colors fabric paints. When I'm, using, when I'm using fabric. And then for my airbrush, I use Createx airbrush paint. And I always use the transparent paints because the opaque ones clog really badly. And I water my airbrush paint down a lot, so I, I get it to work pretty well for me that way. I also bought a new box of praying watercolors today over at the art store here on the island because I forgot my watercolors, and I broke my hand, <clears throat> and it's fixed, but it's not working right yet because it just got fixed, and I just had the cast off two days ago. But I found out that colored pencils take a lot of pushing, and so I've discovered that when I watercolor, it's a lot easier. And using well, markers is easy, and using watercolors is easy, but you've got to keep drawing. You've got to do it. Like, I smashed my hand and I was drawing right away with my left hand because you got to do it. My question is you started out saying you were a painter and you trained as a painter and then you said then you chose to do quilt but I don't understand why you think you're not a painter. It just oh, seems am, to me you're still a painter. I'm back to being a painter. I think, I think I really feel like I came full circle when I got out of all that hand sewing and I just wanted to shake everybody and go, quit it. Don't make me take my time to do this with you. Let me take my time to teach you to open up. Because I want us all to be like little kids enjoying what we're doing instead of suffering when we draw. 
you know, and are thinking we can't draw. And so I'm a drawer and a painter and a storyteller, and then I also sew. I mean, I had this huge background in sewing, and, and it did come out as a feminist choice. Uh, Miriam Shapiro died this year, but she was the feminist painter who went around our country, and maybe she came up into Canada too, and, and she went to colleges mostly and said to the women students, are you a feminist? And if they said yes, she'd say you thought about doing feminist art. And what is feminist art? How do people know it's feminist art? And I was one of the converts. I just, I just really, it made so much sense to me because there's all this stuff I did at home that I never brought into my studio. So, you know, she pointed out that what we were doing was very male-centered, and then we were disregarding what we were doing at home. It wasn't art. It was stuff. We didn't sign it. We didn't date it. We didn't take pictures of it. And so she said, you know, how do you merge that? So I, I, I was also sick of working on canvas because I was making great big canvases and I had no way to put them anywhere. You know, they had to stay in my studio. And so I figured out pretty quick if I worked on unstretched canvas, I could fold it up and put it in my backpack and take it home and work on it some more or send it somewhere. And, and honestly, the thing about art quilts that's still really important to me is that I can photograph them so much easier than a stretched canvas painting because they don't reflect the light. They, they, the light goes every which way, so it's very soft. You can fold them up and put them in a box, send them somewhere real cheap instead of having to spend thousands of dollars to build a crate and mail it out freight and bring it back. And then there's the storage of big, big canvases that are stretched. My daughter works in the Cleveland Museum of Art. I know all about the, the massive stuff they go through to ship those pieces everywhere. It ain't cool. So it's still a feminist choice, and I, but I'm a painter because I've always painted on my art quilts. I've always, I, I did some applique stuff, but it was always narrative imagery. might as well have been painted. A lot of times it was both, and then it just became paint, paint, paint. Yeah, painting rules. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question for you guys, and this is a just raise your hand type of thing. Okay, so how many of you think you can draw? Who can see that? Is that, is, is, is that a lot? looks like a lot. That's good. Well, the rest of you, there's hope for you because you're just flat out wrong because you, you can draw. <laughs> this, is, this is something that's really important to learn as an adult. Everybody, everybody draws when they're a little kid. Everybody draws. You draw. And you draw until somebody says something horrible to you, like, you ruined my wall. Why did you draw over my wall? <laughs> you're bad. <laughs> or, you know, that dog looks like a pig or something, something nasty. Or an art teacher might even say, you didn't do what I said. You did the wrong thing and holds you up as a bad example. And meaning well, but messing you up. So everybody can draw. And drawing is probably one of the best and cheapest therapies in the world. And so draw. Draw, 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 draw. It's really good to draw. And you don't have to show it to anybody if you don't want to at first. You can just take little baby steps and just draw. But, but draw. And, you know, this, this crap they've got going now, I don't know. They're doing it here, the adult coloring books. It's a bunch of baloney you know they should be drawing they should be getting some paper and <laughs> just drawing maybe they'll figure that out maybe a few of them will just go off the edge and start drawing but but drawing is man it's such good therapy art art in general is good therapy but drawing is really good you haven't really addressed um the text you have an enormous amount of that text in there is I that do. does that flow through you how how does that come into your pieces it's important to me that it the text regards the composition, which is an art-speak way of saying I, I want it to fit in with the forms. I don't want it to just go straight across, you know, like writing. It would be so easy to read it if it just went straight across, but that would be stupid. I want it to make the composition move as much as the drawing moves. And so I also know that there's probably half the people that look at my work that will never read any of it, and, and maybe 90% or more will never read it. So What's important then is that it has to function as a design element. And it used to be little stitches, and now it's this writing but it's so much more meaningful to me. So what I do is I just start, and usually the first couple of things I write will be about what the card is about and what's going on that day. And then I just sort of work my way into it. And when I'm in the writing section of my process, which is the longest section, because it only takes like three days to make the painting, even these great big pieces, because airbrush work goes really fast. Once you've got the sketches made, and then I just look at the sketches and decide what I like. And it's like I know who the characters are, what they're doing, and what their props are. And I can look over there and kind of 
check it out. I look at the sketch a little bit, but I don't copy it. I want to, I want always want the drawing to be free form, because when my airbrush is working well, and black is black is the one color that's going to clog on me because it's got to be thick. It can't be not thick, thick, but it can't be pastel because then it'd be gray. So I want these black lines. So if the paint's working well and the airbrush is working well and I'm working well, what it feels like is it feels like your hand is like a hummingbird, and it's hovering and it and it's just making this thing happen and it's magic is just watching this thing happen in front of your eyes the scary part is the first thing you got to put on the fabric and that that's true for every artist but when you got this great big piece of fabric that might be eight feet wide and then the first shape the scale that it is and the placement of it is going to let you get that composition sort of the way it was in the sketch or not and so that's where i i, I give myself a little scare because I want, that, I want that first shape to be at least remotely close to what it was in the sketch. And then after that, I can relax and just draw it. Because if it, if, let's say I start with a head, because a lot of times I'll start with somebody's head. If the head's too big, it's just going to be less of the composition in the actual drawing. Or maybe it'll be the same composition with a great big head. You, know, <laughs> you can decide. But if the head's too small, then you get to add more to the composition on the outside. So that first thing is so critical but after that, I can relax. And, and if that thing is, if the airbrush and the paint are all going well, it's just the best day. It's like, that's it. That, it's, all, it's not all over after that because then I color it and I use the airbrush to color it too. Well, the next fun thing is if it comes out too dark or murky or something, airbrush paint is like fabric paint. Until you heat set it, it's not permanent. So there's this fail-safe where if you've got it too bright or too dark or too whatever, you can put it in a bucket of water. And you slosh it around a little bit, and then, and then you can put it out on the clothesline. So here's this big painting flopping on the clothesline. That's really fun, too. I, one, one time, the, the piece was so dark and so overbright that I put it in the washing machine. And it was the death card in the tarot deck. And I, my girlfriend, showed it to my girlfriends up in Cleveland. We had this little group, group called the West End Textile Tarts. And I showed it to the tarts, and I said, I'm going to put this in the washer. And they go, no, no, it's going to be ruined. And I said, but it's the death card. So if it dies, it dies. <laughs> and it, what came out bad? I learned a lesson from that. It, it, it faded, but all the black lines faded to gray because I hadn't heat set the black lines first. So now, that was a long time ago, I make myself stop and I make myself go heat set the black and then I can come back and put it all up on the wall again and then start in coloring it. Because if I don't, if I have to do that, fading it thing. I don't want those lines of it because then you got to go over all the black lines that are gray lines and you don't want gray lines and that takes forever. That's hard. I think it'd be hard for anybody, not just because of my vision, but I think it'd be hard for anybody to hit those lines and get them just right. So I do that. But that writing, you know, even though I say 90% of the people might not read it, you got to figure there might be one nut that's going to read the whole thing. So you got to have integrity in everything you say. And you got to stand behind everything you say. And you can't say bad words because little kids might read it. But what I don't do is I don't make a transcript of it. Somebody asked me if I make a transcript. And I, and I thought, I would rather drown than make a transcript of that. <laughs> so I, I started making a thing where I write, like a paragraph or a, a section. And then I'll go over to this other table. And I, on date, I'll just write down a little phrase or something of what that was. So I end up with a whole list of what the topics are, at least. And then when I write my artist statement, I go back to that and I, and I incorporate a lot of that into it. So that's my faux transcript. And I, I told that woman that uh, if she wanted a transcript, she should buy the work. And she <laughs> had the transcript. And it's, you know, it's all, there's, there's no first draft or anything I'm copying from because who wants to copy, you know? It's just like writing a letter or an email. You just say it. And a lot of it is, a lot of it's just me writing, but some of it is written from notes. Some of it, I've got my iPad sitting there, and I'm transcribing little sections maybe or just putting in some statistics that I want. And I asked a historian once if this was bad to not give my sources. And she said, no, that doesn't matter. You don't have to worry about it. You were considered a first source. When people look back on your art, you know, if it's still around later, and they look back on it, historians would see it as a first source because it's from a person's point of view. So that was interesting to know. I love that period where I'm doing research, where I have an excuse to spend time on Wikipedia and different things and just read and read and read. It really makes me happy. You guys are great. <laughs> Thank you, Charlotte. You have been listening to a Maiwa podcast. The lecture, 
The Art of Story Painting was presented on Wednesday, September 30th, 2015, as part of the Maiwa School of Textiles lecture series held in Vancouver, Canada. The lecture is introduced by Bonnie Addy and features Susan Shy. The podcast you've just heard consists of excerpts from the lecture. It was first posted in 2018. Maiwa Podcast can be found on the Maiwa School of Textiles website at schooloftextiles.com. That's schooloftextiles, all one word, dot com. For more information about Maiwa and all that we do, please visit our website at maiwa.com. That's M-A-I-W-A dot com. I'm Liberty Erickson. Thank you for listening.